Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another sunny day here in the capital in a week where we're not quite sure whether a global pandemic or Russian interference poses a greater threat to the country. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme first and foremost by Tony Cunningham. Tony is the manager and owner of Leckenby's Tea Rooms in Bury, Lancashire. Uh, Tony, very warm welcome to you this morning and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. My pleasure, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you join us as well, Tony. Um, The reason why we're here, of course, is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we dive in by taking that word leader aside for a second and considering that in a bit more detail, I'm interested to understand what that word means to you. What is a leader's role in your eyes? I think in uh, in my eyes, a leader is somebody who leads literally from the front. We we were the tea rooms. We've been here something like 22 years now. Um, I think I would like to be able to say that I know every aspect of the business. Uh, I'm usually first in, last one out. So to me, the leadership is from the top, showing the staff that you can do everything they can do, and you are there to guide them and help them along. Absolutely right. I think that sort of lead by example approach to leadership is um, there's a lot of merit um, in that. And more so, I think, than perhaps being there over one's shoulder and constantly sort of telling them what to do. You have to sort of guide them and let them take on a little bit of independence for themselves as well, because without letting people sort of push the boundaries of their comfort zones a little bit in their own way, you can't really sort of nurture people and let them develop, can you, if you're sort of just doing everything for them? No, they must be able to do the job properly. I think it's all down initially to training. If we train the staff properly with our way of working so that everybody works in the same method, uh, that makes the job a lot easier. And and they know they're not being looked over the shoulder. They are encouraged to get on with the job. And my job as, as, as a leader is to ensure that those jobs are being done correctly for our customers at the end of the day. And of course, you've a great many years experience um, in running businesses, Tony, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you spent sort of 17 and a half years running a news agents business prior to Leckenby's Tea Rooms coming along in 1997. And since then, of course, you've seen an awful lot, of course, um, a recession in 2008. But one of the biggest challenges that we've seen in business is, of course, the recent COVID-19 situation. Um, how has that been for you and in terms of dealing with that? It's been horrendous, as I think it has been with everybody. It's not something we expected. It's something totally out of the blue. When we were told on a Friday to close our business that night, uh, suddenly you think, well, what on earth is going to happen? Have we got sufficient funds to keep us going during a closed period? Fortunately, the Chancellor came along with his assistance. Had he not done so, heaven help us. I think we and thousands of other businesses would have gone by now. But I think, obviously, with the government's instruction that we have to close, the government then has got to take responsibility for ensuring that during the closure period, we would still be able to at least keep going to some extent so that we're able to open again when they finally say, yes, you can open those doors. And do you think that sort of guidelines-wise, it's been clear enough what's been expected of you throughout and continues to be so as business sort of looks to reopen? Not at all. I think it's been an absolute shambles, if I'm honest. Um, you, they could turn around and say, well, we didn't know what to expect. We've never had to deal with this before. We didn't know what we could do. That I understand. But I think there's been so many mixed messages. Um, nobody's got the confidence to, to have dealt with this. We've had the, the politicians. We've had the, the finance people. We've had the medical people. We've had the scientists. 
they all seem to come up with contradicting information, which to me means that nobody knows exactly how we've been supposed to have dealt with this over the months. The leadership from the top, I know Mark Boris was, was in hospital and ill, but there seems to have been a lack of somebody grasping the nettle to say, look, this is how we're going to deal with all this. And I think the contradictory reports day by day has confused an awful lot of people ourselves included and i suppose when there is sort of so much uncertainty out there there can be a lot of pressure on business leaders especially to sort of keep employees informed and just try and maintain the communication channels keep that reassurance flowing to them because the natural reaction is for any employee to of course look up the hierarchical ladder to their managers and executives for that sort of note that everything is going to be okay and that idea of direction i guess um although yeah. yeah Mm. You, from from day one, we sent a, a letter to. Well, we put it in with the pay packets for each one of them to say, "Look, we're having to close. Uh, our main aim is to get through this, however long it takes, to make sure that we can all reopen again and we'll still be in a job at the end of it." I think we have to give the staff that assurance. And obviously, as the months have gone on, where redundancies and job losses have been a huge amount. It will make any staff who've lost a job feel it's more difficult to get a new job when everything's back to some sort of normality. So we've kept in touch with our staff all along. We've ensured that they know where we're up to, what we're trying to do, when we're going to open again, and what the situation is. So I think it's been very important from our point of view to ensure that the staff have felt confident that their jobs are still going to be there and they're going to come back into work at some point. And I suppose it's taken a bit of flexibility on your part to sort of deal with those multiple people as well, because people, of course, react to different circumstances differently, let alone a pandemic. Some, of course, will be just a bit more reassured instantly. Others might need just that little bit more attention. So that's also another issue. I think it is. We've we've dealt with the the staff themselves. Some have been very relaxed about it. Others have been uh, fed up with having to stay at home and everything else. So we've talked to them all. We've kept them all in the loop. And and I think at the end of it, they've all been understanding that we're under pressure, obviously, because although we're able to furlough the staff, and thank goodness that's been the case, we are still losing money on a week-to-week basis with other bills that have to still be paid. Um, So we're desperate to get back in. Our problem is knowing exactly when to return. We know we could have returned a couple of weeks ago. We've looked at the footfall. We're in a main shopping centre in the centre of Bury. That footfall is nowhere near what we need to be um, able to to work off. We need to be doing at least 75% of our normal trade to make it worth opening those doors. There's nowhere near 75% of people there at the moment. And I think one of the problems is people themselves haven't got the confidence to go out shopping again. Mm. And if I'm perfectly honest, the fact that now the government, after four months, have decided it's imperative when you go in shops, you've got to wear a face mask. Goodness knows why that's not been imperative for the last four months, but that's another issue. But I think the fact that they've now insisting people have got to wear face masks if they go in shops, it's going to put even more people off going out shopping, which contradicts what the Chancellor is trying to do is to get the economy flowing again. If, if people aren't prepared or aren't happy enough to go out to do the shopping, those shops of the high streets and the shopping centres are going to continue to struggle. So the funds are still not going to be generated. It, it's, it's, this is where the contradiction keeps coming in. That Last week it was okay not to wear face masks. 
Now, suddenly, you've got to wear face masks. There's a lack of direction that worries me uh, as a business leader. Mm. And it's been a very difficult and a very sensitive time for many, of course, this pandemic. But on the programme this week, uh, Tony, we are trying to find some sort of silver lining in what's been a dark and dense cloud over all of us. Is there any sort of positive that you feel you and your business can take from this last few months? I think the only positive, and it's a very negative positive, if that's a possibility, is that a lot of other businesses will not reopen. And if that's the case, we may well boost our uh, turnover as a result of them going down. And that's not a very nice position to find ourselves in. But that's about the only thing I can see. Until we get back to normal, heaven forbid we do get back to normal, but until we do, until people have got the confidence to come back out again, um, I, I, I can't really say I'm that positive. I think we've, we've got to hope that, that the government decides that, yes, things have, have eased off sufficiently to allow everybody to, to go back to working and shopping as they normally did. At that point, yes, we'll feel confident. But I'm not too sure how long that's going to take to get to. Certainly appreciate the honesty of that response, Tony. And um, thinking now about sort of the next 12 months and this new normal that we are all going to have to adjust to, just before we do wrap things up on today's programme, I'm interested to know what you think is on the horizon for you and for the Leckenby's Tea Rooms business and what you are hoping to achieve amid all of these challenges. Well, during the, the, the lockdown, we've we've done a, a makeover of the uh, premises. We, we've put new flooring in, new ceiling in, decorated the place. So in a way, when we do get open again, which will probably be another two or three weeks, um, customers are going to come in to see a much nicer environment. Not that it wasn't nice before, but an even nicer environment now. So hopefully from that point of view, that will encourage even more customers to come in. Our regulars hopefully will all be back, although a lot of them are, are on the elderly side, which concerns me a little bit. Um, but I hope that, that they all come back, they can enjoy themselves in Leckenbys again. Um, and hope by, I don't know, the new year, we are back to some sort of normality. Let's certainly hope that there will be some more positive news on the horizon in the uh, the coming months and that normality will hopefully, as planned, be returning sort of by the Christmas period or beyond. Um, Tony, I have to say, um, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today and an incredibly informative one at that. Um, and also, um, I actually think it would be fantastic, just given the scale of the issues that we've discussed today, to actually have you back on in a few months' time with us just to see where we are at at that point. Absolutely fine, Scott, whenever you need me. Yeah, I think that would be fantastic. It's been really enjoyable for me having you join us this morning. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in um, the coming months, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on because it's fair to say we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. Thanks very much, Scott. Appreciate that. I was speaking today to Tony Cunningham, manager and owner of Leckenby's Tea Rooms in Berry, Lancashire. And for those tuning into this today, please do continue to be sensible with lockdown restrictions lifting and look after yourselves and others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Um, coming up next on the programme today, I'm handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, during his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United 
United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago now. I hope that you all enjoyed listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did again mm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only 
uh, about eight months older than me. He graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organization, one thing I have learned and I've taken on my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising they were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing 
um, in it only a few games before I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final and it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen so I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position and somewhat fortuitously I only got back into him because of a a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know, in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had we were very I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals uh, we had some great players but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with you know over the years and Jeff I've got to ask and I'm, I'm not making this up I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both they're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked: Did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that's." Uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so, 
I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot in the ball and waited to just have a, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you into. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, in most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. On this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I had a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we, that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make it again, laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... It would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with... Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really. Well, I think 
some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's have a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was 
a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude (laughs) alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. The word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership, all the time it's a huge part of your life but it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level you may you know have a, have a couple of weeks holiday but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation, and I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.